Good evening, everyone. And thanks for having me back after last week. I was telling Bianca and some of the others that the way I teach my classes at Azusa Pacific is they're back to back to back, three in a row and usually hour and a half for each class. And so sometimes what happens is depending on what the students, they come to class with the reading completed. And then depending on what their interest is, that often dictates or usually dictates what we're going to discuss in the class. And so oftentimes I'll have five and a half hours of just solid lecture, but it's very, very different. I teach Exodus, and so like I said, I was telling Bianca and others that I had to take five and a half hours of a lecture and bring it down to about 35 minutes. So uh, I will do my best this time to get through everything, or at least as much as possible since I have a couple more weeks here. So. All right, we're gonna go through some things, and one of the things I like to do, or usually like to share with people is this, because I remember when I was younger, or even when I was older, uh, there are times when I would struggle looking for books in the Bible. Um, these are gonna be some of the books we're gonna look at. Probably not gonna get to these three, that's for next week, but if we have spillover, we will. So if you wanna use your pew Bibles, or if you have a smartphone and not a humble phone, uh, then go ahead and do that, and you can you know, look at Bible Gateway or whoever, all right? So let's look at some other things. Uh, this, of course, is, uh, I don't want to advertise for them, and, uh, but I just wanted to show something. This, of course, is a FedEx truck, and we've seen these trucks. We've also seen, uh, this is again this, we've also seen uh, perhaps an airplane flying out of an airport. But one of the things that I often like to share with people is this, and it's always been there, and most of you know uh, or probably know where I'm leaning at this point, but there's an arrow on their logo, right? And some of us know that the arrow is there. Some of us were staring at this thinking, where's the arrow? But on their logo, there is an arrow. And it's always been there. Now, how many hands know about the arrow? Yeah, see, about half of you, or maybe a third or half of you know about the arrow. The arrow's right here. And it's always been there, no matter what. I know, there's, there's always that wonderful reaction. And um, you almost feel silly that everyone else has seen it, but you haven't seen it. But trust me, those other, others, it was pointed out to them. They didn't find it by themselves. But it's everywhere on their logo. Um, again, there's the arrow, uh, as plain as plain can be. And there it is again on the airplanes. But it's always there. But I like to bring this up because what happens is this. There are times when we read the Bible, and it could ju just simply be a plain text reading, but we don't see it. Or we don't see what's there, like this arrow. This arrow's always been there, but sometimes we just did, we didn't see it until it was actually what? Pointed out to us, okay? Well, this evening, we're gonna go through the 10 plagues. Well, there's no way in 35 minutes I'm gonna be able to take you through, th through 10 plagues. Um, but these are the 10 plagues. The first one, of course, is the Egyptian waters. First, the Nile turns into blood, okay? The second one is frogs. Next, you have gnats, mosquitoes, or ticks. The reason I have that in a different color is this. Nobody knows what that plague is. We know it's an insect of some sort, but it is the only time in the Hebrew Bible that this one word is used. When you go through the interpretation game or interpreting something, uh, definitely the Bible, when you try to interpret the Bible, what you do is you look for words in context and you hope if one word is used here, you try to find it someplace else and you find its context, and if it's consistent, then you know, okay, this is what this word means. Well, this one word that for gnat, mosquito, or tick, it's only used once in the entire Bible. So at that point, we're just guessing. If someone says it absolutely means this, or it absolutely means this, or it absolutely means this, tell them they are absolutely what? 
wrong or they're just absolutely guessing because that's what they're truly doing, okay? The fourth plague is the plague of flies. Next, we have the livestock plague. Next, boils. Number seven, hail and thunderstorm plague. Eight is locust plague. Nine is darkness plague. And finally, the 10th plague is different. I'm gonna remove it real quick, but the way the plague narrative works is this. You have nine plagues that are separate from the 10th. The nine accomplish one thing, and then the 10th accomplishes something completely different, okay? The death of the firstborn. And it is only after the 10th plague that the Hebrews are finally released, okay? And they're free. So let's look at some things. This is Red Tide. Um, some of you know what Red Tide means. Uh, I was back there uh, with the, um, working with Sarah and going over the slides, and we were looking over uh, these slides. And if you were to see this on a computer screen, and not necessarily a screen like this, this red is, I'm sorry, what is your name again? Phil. Phil, Bianca's father, uh, is, is, is redder than Phil's shirt. It's that red, okay? It's that red. And Red Tide is a natural occurrence throughout the world. Okay? What red tide is is simply it's alga or algae, and it's a buildup. And what it does is it removes the oxygen from the waters. So anything that's living in the water will what? Will die. Or if whatever animal or marine animal is living in the water, if it has the ability to remove itself or get out of the water, then it's going to survive, possibly. But if it's in the water in the first place, eventually it has to find other waters. Okay? Now, if we were to look at this, the 10 plagues in nature, let's say these are absolutely still miracles, but God simply sped up, okay, nature. Let's look at the first one. Instead of blood, what if it was, well, red tide? Bill, where do frogs live? In the water. In the water. Absolutely. So what do they have to do, Phil? They have to get out to survive, okay? What's the second plague? Frogs. But all the waters have become blood or red tide. And now they're in this arid climate and it's dry and they're going to what? They're going to die. Then the frogs die and so what are you, what are you left with? Gnats, mosquitoes, ticks, flies everywhere. Right? Flies carry a disease. Louis Pasteur in 1881 helped us get rid of it regarding livestock. But flies carry a disease. Let me know what it's called. It's anthrax. They carry anthrax. And anthrax, um, what was so horrible, horrific about it, especially was it affected livestock. Um, the next plague is the killing of livestock or the dying of livestock. So it happens this way. And then anthrax also, by the way, carries with it when, and you can look this up online, you get these horrible boils. They're horrific boils that happens. So you can see how even if God were to simply speed up nature, again, these are miracles, but even if we look at them naturally, it can happen. And then we have, of course, hail and thunderstorm. Locusts, I'm reminded, or we are reminded every 17 years in the South and in the Midwest, what's going on right now or this summer are the cicadas. Okay? And if you have family, or if you are from the South, or you've been in the Midwest, or you've been around during these times, you have, you have cicadas or locusts everywhere. And then you have darkness that can be felt. What that simply means is this. And if, if you've ever been to uh, the Southwest, Arizona, uh, Albuquerque, um, these places where they have these, these winds that sweep through and then sweep up the desert, the desert sand, and it's a darkness that can be what? That can be felt. 
Okay? So let's look at this. I'm going to start reading for us in Exodus chapter 11, verse 1. So let's turn there. This is the 10th plague, okay? The 10th plague begins here in Exodus chapter 11. I'm going to be reading from the New Revised Standard Version. I think your pulpit Bibles are the English Standard Version, but they're very similar. Exodus chapter 11, let me start in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. And there it is. Afterwards, he, God, will let you go from here. Indeed, when he lets you go, he will drive you away. Tell the people that every man is to ask his neighbor and every woman is to ask her neighbor for objects of silver and gold. The Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, Moses himself was a man of great importance. What happens here is this. Moses, because at one point, at the end of the book of Genesis, Joseph reaches to that point where he's second in command. Moses has replaced whom? He's replaced him. He's replaced Joseph. Let me keep going, please. Moreover, Moses himself was a man of great importance in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's officials, and in the sight of the people. Verse 4 now in Exodus chapter 11. Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go through Egypt. Every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. For the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne to the firstborn of the female slave who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the livestock. Then there will be a loud cry throughout the whole land of Egypt, such as has never been or ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl at any of the Israelites, not at people, not at animals, so that you may know that the Lord makes a what? A distinction between Egypt and Israel. This is something else that's important. Terence Freedom is one of my favorite theologians, and I love what he says here in relation to this and the Hebrews. He makes this bold statement, and, well, I happen to agree with him. God is a God who takes sides. God is a God of the oppressed. God enters into their, their, the Hebrews' difficult, suffering situations to set things right. God is a God who is concerned to move people from slavery to what? To freedom. God absolutely takes sides in the situation. Or as a lot of my students like to say, the more they study and the more they read this, they realize God plays favorites. And I don't have a problem with that. Let me keep reading. Verse 8, then all these officials of yours shall come down to me and bow low to me, saying, leave us, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. And in hot anger, he left Pharaoh. Let me keep going. Verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you. In order that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Verse 10, Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord did what? The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now, this is where a young 17, 18-year-old male or female student who's largely grown up in evangelical churches, they get to this point, and so many of their sermons are topical. They get to this point, well, they struggle with it. Because again, it says here, the Lord did what? The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now, the often read phrase is this, let my people go, right? Let my people go that they may worship me. Well, again, we have a problem. In a plague narrative, and let's back up to chapter five real quick. Let's back up to chapter five of Exodus real quick. I want to show us something. In chapter five of Exodus, it says this, Chapter 5, and as you can see in verse 1, let me read in chapter 5, verse 1, it says this. It says, 
Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may celebrate a festival to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who was the Lord, that I should heed him and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord. Just before, Moses asked what God's name is. Who is this God? This God of the Hebrews, but Moses actually asked who this God's name is. So even Moses has just recently found out what this God's name is. The question that Pharaoh asked here, but Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should heed him and not let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. This is a proper response. I showed you last week 10 sets of slides, and each slide had an average of 10 to 15 gods that the Egyptians worshipped. If anybody would know this god, it would have been who? It would have been Pharaoh and the Egyptians. He doesn't know this god, at least not by this name. So we struggle with this. Let me keep going. The dilemma. Flip over to chapter 4, please. Let me start reading in verse 21. It reads, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. I said to you, let my son go, that he may worship me. But you refused to let him go. Now I will kill your firstborn son. Now I will kill your firstborn son. That's the last plague. There are nine before it. But they jump to the last plague because it is the last plague that actually does what? That actually lets them go. That actually lets them go. My students now struggle with this even more because what happens from chapter 4 of Exodus for the next 10 chapters, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And then the natural questions should come up, and they do come up, such as this. Even if Pharaoh wanted to let them go after the first plague, could he have done so? I think it would have been difficult. And then all these questions come up, such as, and it always comes up, and it's probably coming up with some of you right now, Where's free will? Does Pharaoh at this point even have the ability to make a choice? Over the next 10 chapters, Pharaoh's heart is hardened 20 times. Just a couple of times, by the way, Pharaoh hardens his own heart. But the rest of the time, it's God doing so. Albert, you're going to preach on justice next week, right? We look for justice in the Bible. And my students, these young 17-year-olds, arrive and they say, my God is a just God, a just and fair God. And I have free will and I can make choices. And then they read this and it just stops them. It just stops them. And what I usually like to say is this. The Bible that you think exists doesn't. And the God that you think exists doesn't. It's far, far, far more than what you've learned. Far, far more. Romans chapter 9. Let's turn there, please. So flip all the way over, please, to the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I think they're still in that order. And let's jump to Romans chapter 9. Now, Romans chapter 9, for my young students, it frustrates them even more because they can look at this text and they can say to themselves, you know what, that's the Old Testament. I really, I'm not going to pay attention to that because now we have a new covenant, and it's Jesus. 
Well, let's look at Romans. By an incredibly difficult book. Romans is the heaviest theological book in the Bible. Okay, let me start reading here. In Romans chapter 9, I'm going to start reading verse 6. It is not as though the word of God had failed, for not all Israelites truly belong to Israel, and not all of Abraham's children are his true descendants, but it is through Isaac that descendants shall be named for you. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as his descendants. Verse 9 in chapter 9 of Romans, for this is what the promise said, about this time I will return and Sarah will have a son, verse 10, nor is that, nor is that all. Something similar happened to Rebekah when she had conceived children by one husband, our ancestor Isaac, verse 11 now, even before they had been born or had done anything good or bad so that God's purpose of election might continue, not by works but by his call. She was told, the elder shall serve the younger. Verse 13, as it is written, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. What then are we to say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who shows mercy. And here it is. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I have raised you up for the very purpose of showing my power in you, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he chooses, and he hardens the heart of whomever he chooses. Eric, do me a favor. Eric's going to play a little bit of music. What I'd like you to do right now is this. Um, I want you to talk with the people next to you and talk about this. And put yourself, perhaps, uh, in the same place of a 17-year-old American male or female. And you're looking at this and you're always thinking, God loves everybody equally. God shows no injustice towards anyone, but there's justice equally for everyone. Talk about that. We'll come back together in a few minutes. Cut it a little short. Um, I, I point this out because, again, and I wanted you to put yourself in the position of a 17-year-old. Adam said this. He said, I'm okay with this, but I've recovered from my Christian schools. <laughs> I bow down to you, Adam. It is a struggle. It really is a struggle. And then, well, let's go a little deeper. I look at it this way. I compare Pharaoh and Judas equally. I compare it equally. God says, this is what's going to happen to Pharaoh. God, through his son Christ, Jesus prophesies and says, Judas, you are going to do this. So the same question comes up. And the question is this, could Judas say what? No. Correct. Could Judas say no to the situation? Again, where is free will? Turn to Acts chapter 1, please. I'm going to back up a book. Acts chapter 1. And what I want us to look at here is this. And this is another thing that is often surprising to not just, by the way, not just to the 17, 18-year-old freshman at Azusa Pacific, but what often happens is this. They know that Judas died one way. At least that's what they think, that Judas hanged himself. But then I show them this text, and once again, they're stuck. Let me start reading in Acts chapter 1. Let me start reading in verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers 
together with the crowd numbered about 120 persons, and said, friends, the scripture had to be fulfilled, prophecy, which the Holy Spirit through David foretold concerning Judas, who became a guide for those who arrested Jesus, verse 17, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in his ministry, verse 18. Now this man acquired a field, this man Supposedly it's Judas, or it is Judas, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he did what? He burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. This became known to all the residents of Jerusalem, so that the field there goes on and on. In Acts, when Judas dies, this is how he dies. Well, let's do this. Turn to Matthew chapter 27, please. So just flip over a few books. Matthew, I think it's still the first gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew 27, verse 5, it says this. Throwing down the pieces of silver in the temple, he departed and went and did what? He hanged himself. He hanged, and that's proper, by the way. He hanged himself. Um, remember being taught years ago, coffee cups are hung, but people are hanged. He hanged himself. There's two different ways that he dies. People have tried to put these together, but one says one and the other says the other, and they're quite different. The Passion of the Christ, the movie by Mel Gibson, I was impressed with how they did this. When they showed Judas hanging, do you remember what was right underneath him? I'm not sure if you remember. There was a cow right underneath him with what? With his stomach cut open and his bowels outside. They did it brilliantly. But most people didn't what? We didn't recognize it. We didn't recognize it. Let me keep going. Next, turn to John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The Gospel of John, chapter 13. Let me start reading for us. In verse 1, it says this. Now, before the festival of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and go to the Father, having loved his own, who were in the world. He loved them to the end. The devil, and here it is, had already put into the heart of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray him. But then we're going to jump to another place in chapter 13. Let me jump to verse 21 of chapter 13. It says this, after saying this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and declared, very truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. Verse 22, the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he was speaking. One of his disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter therefore mentioned to him and asked Jesus of whom he was speaking. So while reclining next to Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? 26, Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. So when he had dipped the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. And 27 is the key. Verse 27 says this, after he received the piece of bread, what happens? Satan enters him. It is only after Satan enters Judas that he acts. Again, this is very disturbing. He was chosen for this. But even Jesus knew, perhaps after living with me for three years and ministering, there's no way he was going to do this. And the only way he was capable of doing this is if what? is if Satan entered him. Let's keep going. Let's go jump to Luke 22. 
Luke 22, 1 through 6. Now the festival of unleavened bread, which is called the Passover, was near. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a way to put Jesus to death, for they were afraid of the people. And here it is again. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was one of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers of the temple police about how he might betray him to them. They were greatly pleased and agreed to give him money. So he consented and began to look for an opportunity to betray Jesus to them when there was no crowd. Let me keep going. Now, this is another thing that we miss, and it's rarely taught. In fact, I have never, ever heard it preached on in my life that Judas repents. But he does. Judas does repent. Turn with me back to Matthew chapter 27. Let me start reading in verse 1 of Matthew 27. It says this. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus in order to bring about his death. They bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. Verse 3. When Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he did what? He repented and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. He said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. It's pretty remarkable. I'm 22 years old. I'm kidding, I'm 47. In my whole life, I have never, ever heard this text preached on because we have Judas in a box. Judas, the worst person to ever live, ever. And this is another part where students get to this place and they say, wait, because we're all taught that we're supposed to forgive, ask for forgiveness, repent, confess, and he does these things. It's what the prodigal son story is about. The prodigal son story isn't about unconditional love. We tend to focus on that. But if you read the two introductions to the prodigal son story, it's about repentance. And even when the prodigal son returns to the father, he repents not once, but twice, and confesses. This is what Judas does here. Judas confesses. Judas repents. He's asking for forgiveness. This is what I've done. My question could be this. At this point, did Satan leave Judas's heart? And now he realizes what he's done, and he's confessing. Let me keep reading. But they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. Throwing down the pieces of silver in the temple, he departed, and he went and did what? He hanged himself. What I often like to do, and I do this with my students, and I do this when I study the Bible and I read the Bibles, I do this. I try as best I can to put myself in the character shoes that I'm reading about. And I can imagine being Judas here and confessing and saying, you know what, I have sinned. Look what I've done. And not only that, he returns the money because we're told that he was incredibly greedy. He stole from the treasury. I struggle with that. Because if that was the case, he would have just kept the money and just kept going. But he hangs himself. It's what he does. Not just in the Catholic Church, but when I was growing up as a Protestant, young Catholic person, then a Protestant, even in the Protestant Church, if you hanged yourself, well, it was a mortal sin. You went to hell. That has changed. From when I was younger in the Protestant Church, that's how it was. 
Sadly, Rick Warren from Saddleback Church down in Southern California, his son committed suicide a few months ago. His son suffered from bipolar disease and, and other ailments. At one point he said this, he said, and I paraphrase, he said, Dad, I just can't make this go away. And sadly, his young son committed suicide. Now, if they were Catholic, it's one story. But these are our Protestant brothers, and they look at it differently, very differently. I bring this up because I think it's important for all of us to put ourselves as best we can in the shoes of every single character that we read about. Be it Pharaoh, be it Judas, be it Moses, whoever the character is, I think it's important to do so. Albert, again, you're talking on justice next week. One of my favorite students I had four years ago, we were talking about justice. And God, is God just all the time? Is God fair all the time? And I just gave you a couple of examples where it's difficult to say that, depending on the situation. I'm not saying God isn't just. I'm not saying God isn't fair. But there are times when we have things like this in the Bible. That one semester, in that one class, I had a woman in my class, and she was 52 years old. I'd never had a student that age. But she, was going, she had never gone to college in her life, and she was at a position in her life where she could go to, go to college. And so she decided to do so. And we started reading through and studying these passages. And she writes me a long reflection paper. It's basically a letter. And then she says she wants to get coffee and we talk. When she was in her early 20s, she wanted to be a mother horribly. I mean, she wanted to be a mother as bad as she could. And she got pregnant. Got married young, got pregnant, and had a miscarriage. She had three miscarriages in a row. And she kept going to church and kept going to church, and her churches kept saying this, our God is a loving, unconditional loving God that's always just and that's always fair. But when she saw this, she said for the first time in over 30 years, she could relax. Again, I'm not saying God isn't just. I'm not saying God isn't fair. But she was able to relax and to realize, okay, there was a reason, perhaps. Or she thought, why? She kept saying, why me? Why me? In these situations. And then there was a young man named Alfred Loero, and I'll never forget young Al, and he said this, because that class in particular kept talking about justice and injustice and fairness. And he said this, again, I, would never, I will never forget when he said this. He said, if God was truly just, we would all be dead. And I remember he said that, and you could have heard a pin drop in my classroom. He said, if God was truly just, we would all be dead. And speaking about our sins and the lives that we lead. So Walter Brueggemann, he says this, it is only because of God's mercy and grace and forgiveness that sin is able to exist. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you for this time. I thank you for your word, and I thank you for what you bring to us, night in, day in, all day, Lord, in our lives. Lord, this book is filled with so much. It's filled with your love. It's filled with your justice. And it's also filled, Lord, with, well, questions that we have that lead us to study and dig even deeper into your word. It's what we're supposed to do. And not just read it in the surface, Lord, but again, dive deeper and dig deeper. And we can ask and we should ask the questions, the difficult questions, and come together and try to come up with answers. In your name we pray. Amen.